That's right. Yeah. Go ahead and take out your candy canes and begin to eat. Mm-hmm. All right, well, today we are going to re return to Revelation chapter 3 and move to our fifth church in the seven we've been talking about. And the church for today at the fifth church is the church at Sardis. Notice, if you will, we're going to look at the map real quickly. You're going to find a small portion. The map can't get very big without getting distorted. But if you look at the map, you continue to see our clockwise rotate, rotation of this sort of emphasis, and now we made our way to the fifth church. In relation to the church we just had before at Thyatira, which is a fourth, notice how it's mostly south, maybe a little bit east, but mostly south. There's not a mileage indicator on the map, but just for knowledge purposes, recognize that's about 30 miles south, maybe a little east, but mostly south of Thyatira. So that's where it's located. But a few things we also should maybe know about Sardis before we read the text is that a position on an important trade route that ran from the east to the west through the kingdom of Lydia. There was a very important industry within the city of Sardis, which made it a wealthy city. They had jewelry and dye and textiles that they had within the city that made it wealthy. From a religious standpoint, it had a center of pagan worship of the site of the temple of Artemis. There's still a small village there called Sart within the uh, proximity of Sardis. And archaeologists then have located the ruins of a Christian church building next to the temple. And you may see a little picture of that there too, of the archaeologists' findings of the leftover church at Sardis. So that's the information that's helpful to know about Sardis, our fifth church. But the message to Sardis that we're about to read is not lengthy, it's only six verses in length. The message to the church at Sardis for all practical purposes, is fairly clear, at least as compared to the letters given to the four previous churches that we have already discussed. Within the letter to the church of Sardis, there's not going to be find any mention. We're going to find anything that we've already read previously about that just begged for us to have some elaboration. Things like accepting the practice of Nicolaitans. You don't find that mention at Sardis. Or do you find the doctrine of Balaam? We Expanded upon that in previous churches, but not the Sardis. We don't find anything pertaining to the worship of Asclepius or Artemis or Astarte or Dionysus. And there's no teachings to expand upon, no reference to Jezebel to commit the fortification that we've seen in the previous church of Thyatira. So all these things we've already seen and elaborated upon with Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira doesn't appear at Sardis. But there's one thing at Sardis that does appear that's happening that's a bit frightful that maybe makes it much worse than any of the previous churches we've had in discussion so far. And that's because it's pronounced as dead. It's a dead church. So I ponder that thought and I ask, is there anything worse than a church that's pronounced as dead? We're going to find as we get to the seventh letter, there might be indeed one thing worse than a dead church, but that's reserved for the last church of Laodicea. But think about if the Lord suddenly appeared here at Crossroads and he'd come in and pronounced our church as dead, that'd be horrible. I mean, I would never want the Lord to pronounce any church as dead, but we find that is the case as Sardis. And unfortunately, as we think about that, 
It's such a horrible thought to find the church dying or pronounced as dead. It does happen. And many churches don't see it coming. So today, then, we want to address some things that keep us, that will keep us becoming spiritually dead. Mainly, we're going to focus upon the responsibilities that we have as believers. And when we fulfill these responsibilities, then perhaps we can avoid that death that happened at Sardis. Well, again, explain, elaborate as we go, but let us read the text this morning. Again, it's in Revelation chapter 3. Stand with me if you're able to as we stand to honor the reading of the word. Again, I said it's only six verses. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, and then read through verse 6 as it pertains to the church at Sardis. Verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4 reminds us that he says you still have a few names of Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Finally, verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Father, Lord, we come again before you today, Lord, with yet another church to consider and our message is pertaining to the seven churches written in Revelation. Lord, we begin to contemplate and consider the message today and as it pertains to Sardis, we pray for our church and we pray for the church in general, Lord, that death would not occur as you keep us spiritually alive and active, Lord. I pray for all of us then as a corporate body together for the church to be alive, but I pray for us as individuals to be alive and thriving. Looking forward, Lord, to how we can even bring other people to, to be alive in Christ Jesus. So Lord, lead and guide and direct us here today. And let's be thankful what we shall learn and can apply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, notice in verse 1, we go back to the beginning with the address and the letter being sent to the church of Sardis, that we have another unique address or description given to Christ as we find in the very first verse. Look in the address. It's unique to any other church. It's not been written before previously to any of the other four churches. It's unique in that it's only given to Sardis in this manner. But notice how it says, the words of him who has the seven spirits and of God and the seven stars. And that's unique in the way Christ describes himself, but it's not the very first time that appears in the book of Revelation. Because in chapter 1, verse 4, we find something written very similar to what you find in the beginning address to the church of Sardis. Here in verse chapter 1, verse 4, it simply says the seven spirits who are before the throne. And yes, word is slightly different. But notice how there are similarities in the beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4, and now with the letter, the address to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1. But as we find a similarity there, 
What is most meaningful is perhaps the seven spirits. And most likely the seven spirits is being referred to the Holy Spirit in relation to himself, Jesus. Maybe even referral to him, to Jesus, in this total perfection. Now, some way that's confusing, let me use the words of Warren Moresby, who maybe adds a clarifying comment. When he says, yes, there is only one spirit, only one Holy Spirit. But the number seven demonstrates fullness and completeness. So perhaps that's what is being used in the reference to the seven spirits. But also in chapter three, we find another reference we must explain a little bit about. And that's the reference to the seven stars. The seven stars mentioned in chapter three, verse one, has also been mentioned in chapter one and verse 20 and may provide the explanation. In chapter 1, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven gold lampstands also makes referral to. But it says, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So basically, the seven stars mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1, represents the angels, and the angels are messengers. Some even say it's the pastors of the churches. So that provides some explanation. That may be informative and may be nice to know, and maybe even offer a little bit of understanding as it pertains to Revelation. But what we really need to focus on today, and we go back to chapter 3, verse 1, is not so much about the seven stars or the seven spirits, but really the latter part of verse 1. Look at it again with me. It says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. That's what we want to focus on this morning. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, I ask you rhetorically, think about it. Would you view that as accommodation or rebuke or both? Because it's interesting that some find the phrase, reputation of being alive, as accommodation, something good is being pointed out to them at the church, the believers. However, it is more accurate to read the entirety of the phrase in this context and state it is not accommodation, but rather a rebuke, a reproof, a criticism, a condemnation of the believers at Sardis. The scholars at Dallas Theological Seminary write the Bible Knowledge Commentary and they say that the only word of approval is in actuality a word of rebuke. As Christ declared, they had the reputation for being alive and apparently were regarded by their contemporaries as an effective church. But Christ quickly stripped away the reputation of being alive by declaring you're dead. So in other words, they're saying it's not meant to be a accommodation for them, but rather a rebuke a condemnation given to them to say, hey, once you were alive. That's not a commendation, but hey, say you were alive, but now you're dead is actually a condemnation for the church. Maybe a better perspective is offered by N.T. Wright. The scholar says, they have, the believers at Sardis, have the reputation of being alive, of being a vibrant going concern, a fellowship where things are happening. But they have gone to sleep on their reputation and need to wake up. Basically, their works have not been found to be complete. He said that might be a tactful way of saying that their performance of the gospel 
their Christian way of life leaves a lot to be desired. But that's not the sort of thing Christian faith is. It's all or nothing. Either Jesus really is the Lord, rightly asking for absolute allegiance, or he is a sham and should be rejected outright. It simply will not do to bumble on, looking busy, but achieving little or nothing. Reputation is not enough. I like the words of N.T. right here and his perspective he offers to us. Because we find in that statement, in that comment, that we can narrow in on some application. So we're going to have that once more time that you can see behind on the screen, but I've highlighted some application principles we can find, and you're going to see that in red. So notice in the red, the application we have as believers to make sure we never spiritually die is that the believers in Sardis, I mean, yeah, they, they've gone to sleep. They're going to sleep on all their laurels. They're resting on their reputation. And he says, hey, y'all need to wake up. Is the church today the same where they need to wake up? Many churches today need that wake-up call because they're resting upon what happened in the past and living on tradition when they need to make sure they actually stay alive in Christ. Notice how N.T. Wright also says this, the Christian way of life, referring to the believers in Sardis, but maybe modern believers today, leaves a lot to be desired. Is the actions we have today to other people that we truly are alive in Christ? Thirdly, he says the Christian faith is all or nothing. That is precisely correct. It is all or nothing. You can't just have a little bit of Jesus. Either you got him or you don't. Either Jesus really is the Lord, as he mentions here, rightly asking and us giving him our absolute loyalty and allegiance, or else he is a sham, and it should be rejected. It's one or the other. It cannot be both. Notice how he also says it simply won't do to bumble on, looking busy for but achieving little or nothing. Having something we're doing for his glory all the time, just like yesterday. We were not doing anything we did yesterday for the Christmas toy giveaway for our glory. We weren't being busy just to be busy, to make it look like we were doing something here at Crossroads. We were doing something to reach out to the community to give them the love of Jesus Christ. We prayed over the event, we gave it to God, and let God use it for his glory. Not bumbling on, just looking busy for the sake of being busy. And then he also says reputation is not enough. We cannot rest upon a reputation. Every church, think about it, every church probably has a reputation. Maybe you never thought about what our reputation might be. Hopefully our reputation is that we are a Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching church that loves to reach out to the community and teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Every church has a reputation. But we cannot rest on a reputation. So looking at those things that N.T. Wright comments on and finding some highlights in there, the application presents itself. The application being this. As a Christian believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you personally leaving a lot to be desired? Do you need that wake-up call that so many believers today truly need? I mean, do people really see you as a humble servant of the Lord? 
willing to risk your reputation, your personal reputation, for his glory? Are you going about your Christian life looking busy, but never fully committing or surrendering to the Lord? Is your Christian walk simply a facade, a show you're putting on for others? That's questions we might ask ourselves and begin to apply to our lives directly, wherever we are in life as a believer. Because the fact is, Jesus knows, listen, Jesus knows those who are truly his. He can see past all the exterior fluff, all the pretty things we want to put on, and know precisely what is in the heart and who is truly his. I mean, he knows if our soul is in tune with him, if we're truly sold out for him. I mean, basically, we can fool some of the people some of the time, but we never, never can we fool Jesus any of the time. But when you think about that as an application, the Bible provides one. Because Jesus had an issue with the Pharisees. I mean, he knew that their soul was not in tune to him. Matthew chapter 23 is full of harsh criticism given to the Pharisees. Harsh words and criticism that Jesus gave to those people who wanted to be all that, but were not. Make a note later to read Matthew 23, but here's a snippet of some things that Jesus tells these people who are only going for the show. He says in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup to make it look pretty in the plate. But inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, again, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When I begin to think about the church of Sardis, these passages come to my mind. I mean, as believers who were once alive and described in what's been written to them, but are now dead. I mean, then, then like the Pharisees, this church, I mean, the, the believers of Sardis, their outer appearance was really a facade hiding their lack of the truly surrendering to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's their lack we're seeing here in the condemnation of their lack of passion, their lack of loyalty and allegiance, their lack of commitment that they had that led to the death of their church. Their lack of commitment is actually evident in verse 2 where Christ added, I have not found your work, your deeds complete, in the sight of my God. So, in short, the believers at Sardis 
were falling far short, far short of fulfilling their obligations and responsibilities as believers. Let me say that again. And I'm going to pause to make sure you hear that. The believers at Sardis, who were once alive and now are dead, are now spiritually dead because they were not fulfilling their obligations as believers. Well, that leads us into the question we've got to have an answer to. Because if we are fulfilling some sort of obligation on a part-time basis and never really commit ourselves to the Lord, then we really got to know it, it, to prevent ourselves from becoming a dead individual or a dead church, what are our obligations as believers to Jesus? What are our obligations and responsibilities as believers? That's the question we should know the answer to because we never want to fail. We never want to fall to the level that the church is Sardis. So basically, if we are fully aware of our obligations as believers, and we move ourselves to honor and keep them, then we can position ourselves to never become a dead church. So again, the question for answering today is what are our obligations, responsibilities as believers? And before we answer, perhaps you already know. Perhaps you're already aware in your Christian life that Christians have a great responsibility as servants of the Lord. Knowing what these responsibilities are is the first step of actually living out a very fruitful Christian life. And then greatly assist in avoiding the threat of becoming a dead individual or a dead church. So we're going to list five. Today we have five responsibilities or obligations. Now listen, it's not just limited to five. But for time's sake, I'm going to offer five. Five responsibilities and obligations that we should be doing in our lives to make sure we do never become pronounced as a church or individual as dead. And the first one you may have realized is this. Love God before self and others. Love God first and foremost. Certainly before self and others. And remember, in Jesus' life, the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, were in great opposition to Jesus. So much so that they attempted upon multiple occasions to discredit him in the front of the crowds that were always following him. I mean, they followed Jesus to hear him. But they were always the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to find some way to discredit him. So written in Matthew 22 is many situations in which they tried to confront him directly for him to not have his followers and to maybe prove that he's a fraud, a fake, a phony. So they ask a series of questions, and the first question they ask him in Matthew 22, verse 17, is about, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what Jesus answers in verse 21, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So they didn't trip him up on the first question they ask him. I mean, he's smarter than that. He can see through the facade. He can see through their, their, their show, their fake, their phonies. So the frustration sets in with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they go further. And the next series of questions they ask Jesus to discredit him in front of his followers pertains to marriage. So Matthew 22, to pick up the story more in verse 24. They say, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow 
and raise up the children for his brother. He says, now there were seven brothers among us. The, first, the Sadducee says, the first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. I don't know what that woman did. He said, but after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But they're trying to trick him up. So Jesus answered in verse 29, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given to marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he shuts down the Pharisees once more. So they're not done yet. They gather themselves together. They think they're going to find the ultimate question in which you can prove him to be a fraud and discredit him in front of his followers. So you find then in Matthew 22 and verse 36, one more time. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There, Jesus clearly tells us one of our responsibilities. To love your God, first and foremost. I mean, Jesus proves that he is God's son, his only son, that he is fully God and fully man. But at the same time, he points to provide all the believers who are listening even the Pharisees, was one of the greatest responsibilities we have to love God. First and foremost, love God before self and others. That's one of our greatest responsibilities we have as believers. So do a quick check. Do we love God first and foremost, or sometimes do we love other things more than God? That's an answer to the question that only you can know. But the first responsibility we have as believers is to love God first. Love him before self and others or anything. The second responsibility that we have as believers. Preach the gospel to everyone in the world. Preach the gospel to everyone. Not just a few people, your family and friends. Those are people you like. Leave out those people you don't like. Don't preach to them gospel. Preach the gospel to everyone in the world. I mean, as much as our responsibility is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, we also should witness to everyone everywhere. And it's not just written once or twice to us to do this. It's written multiple times. Upon three instances especially. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And even in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is indeed our responsibility to convey the good news to as many people as we possibly could convey it to. I mean, God destined that responsibility to us as believers. Think about it. 
It's his plan he has to spread the good news about his son. There is no plan B. That is the plan. To spread the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the creation. It's our responsibility. You're thinking, wait a minute. I thought that responsibility is for the pastor. Well, preaching and teaching the gospel is not limited solely for preachers and evangelists. Timothy was instructed by Paul. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Here's the charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We are, as all believers, all believers are to preach and teach the gospel to everyone, everywhere. One commentary I was reading said, The Bible teaches us that our responsibility as believers is to work uncompromisingly as the Lord has gifted us and leads us in this life. We must fully understand until the Lord returns, there are souls to reach and ministries of every sort to be performed. That's spot on. It's our responsibility. I mean, if we don't preach, if we don't teach the gospel, then who will? It's our responsibility. It's the second one we find that we can do in our lives to make sure we fulfill to keep us from becoming a dead church. A third obligation we have as believers that help us to avoid becoming a dead church or dead individual is to help a fellow believer get back on the right path. To help a fellow believer get back on the right path. Now, admittedly, this is responsibility that takes a little bit of tact. And you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful about how you approach individuals. We would never want to come across as condemning someone. Or we also don't want to come across as condoning particular activity. But it was written and charged in Galatians chapter 6. He says, dear brothers and sisters, Paul writing. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. He says, further share each other's burdens. And in this way, obey the law of Christ. He says, if you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. I mean, the fact is, as Paul writes this, that for all of us, the fact is we are no better than anybody else. We're not all that in a bag of chips. Now, I know you gave me that shirt. And I wear it proudly that I'm all that in a bag of chips. But I'm not any better than anybody else. None of us are. Because at the core, we all sin. We all fall short. And when someone has such a grievous sin in their life where they somehow get off the right path, get misdirected, and succumbs to the enemy, we have responsibility as believers to steer them back upon the right path. Again, we've got to use tact. We've got to be careful how we approach them. But notice how our responsibility as believers is to steer that believer back on the right path. To keep them also alive rather than dead. So our third responsibility of the five we're outlining here today 
is to help a fellow believer get back on the right path. And then a fourth responsibility as a believer is do what is good because of God's grace. Do what is good because of God's grace. Now listen, we do good deeds not to earn God's favor, but rather we do good deeds. All of us should do good deeds like yesterday or any outreach we have. We do good deeds because God's grace is what he poured out on us. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, is remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now that's a lot of wording in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But it reminds us of how we must be submissive to earthly rulers. How we should speak evil of no one. How we should avoid being argumentative and quarreling. And how we should be courteous to all people. Now, you think about that. That's a pretty tall order to do in life. I mean, how many of us, not by a show of hands, but how many of us can honestly say that we can fulfill this particular instruction to be submissive and obedient to authority, to speak no evil against anyone, to not be argumentative, to not be quarrelsome. My kids are always argumentative and quarrelsome. They always speak evil against me, never against Sheila. And we always should be courteous. I mean, when it comes to these things, I recognize that I fail. I mean, I fall hard when it comes to fulfilling these instructions. I look at my life and I think about it and I thought, when I'm on that bus, I get truly frustrated a lot of other drivers because they cannot drive and I can. They just get in my way. And I go through a drive through and I might say something under my breath or certainly thinking about it when I have to wait and drive through. I can't stand it. I'm impatient. And I tend to justify and rationalize that I overcome all these inequities by doing good things. But I need to remember, I need to wake up call, recognize I, I don't, that's not why I do good things. I do good things. We do good things because of God's love he has for us. Because of his grace that he's offered to each of us. The fourth responsibility tells us to do what is good because of God's grace. And then finally, a fifth. Again, there's not just five, but a fifth we're offering today. Responsibility is to defend others in need. Yeah, defend others in need. It's hard to believe it's over two years, almost three years come this February, that we've been together here at Crossroads. 
But when I left the church in Evansville and came to church here at Crossroad, I left full-time employment as a pastor and came to bivocational employment, uh, pastor here at the church. And then I simultaneously applied to the ARC to work there, the ARC of Gibson County. I mean, the name's changed over the years. It's not ARC of Gibson County anymore. Now it's ARC of Southwest Indiana because they have Dubois, I mean, uh, Pike and Gibson County. They incorporate into their vision and mission. But when I started working at the ARC, I began to understand the meaning of defending and helping others in need. As you may know, if you know anything about it, the ARC is all about helping persons with disabilities, both physical and mental disabilities especially. So essentially, the ARC and all its many employees help others when they cannot actually help themselves. And they also then defend them against abuse and neglect and the things that happen to them in life. The employees of the ARC, things I've done before is to help and assist them with things like, you know, buying groceries, medication that they need help taking. And, and, and it's, it's simple little things we just take for granted, like paying bills and expenses. There's one young man I worked with, has some mental disability, but was able to sometimes still work that actually could live with himself but still have to have help with social needs. One of the needs he needed help with was his bills. But the spectrum had taken advantage of this young man, and his spectrum bill was over $260 a month because he had the Internet and a phone and um, other stuff. He had that, a special package of TV that he was watching, and he had all these things he kept doing and, and watching and he kept paying $260 a month. When we took a look at what he had in the effort to help him and assist him with his bills, we reduced his bill one particular month to $60 per month and got rid of all that stuff he did not need. And we're still being charged for it. We are to defend and help others in need. It's what we do here at Crossroads. When you think about all the ministries we do here at Crossroads, we help a lot of other people in need. We recognize that's our responsibility. It's responsibility we have as believers to help another person in need. Now, it, it's not something we should just take for granted. I mean, at the ark, sometimes we just simply take for granted the things we can do, basic things in life, like to be able to change our clothing or to go to the bathroom. At the ark, you got to help individuals actually go to the bathroom and change their clothes when needed. It's things we just take for granted in life. But we as believers, in whatever way we need to do it, we defend and help others in need. That don't mean you're going to run right out of here and apply it to ARC, although they do your help. But it means that we need to recognize, as an illustration of the ARC, that we have to have responsibility to help others when they need the help. And we need to defend them when they need somebody to defend them. The scripture that points towards this is Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9. It says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. Recognize that's one of our responsibilities as believers. Yeah, we've got to live our life, but we help others in their time of need. So, Five responsibilities we have as believers. Again, it's not limited to just five. I could go on for hours and give you more responsibilities we have for believers. 
The five we have today is first and foremost love God. Preach the gospel to everyone everywhere. Help a fellow believer get back on the right path lovingly. And do what is good because of God's grace and defend others in need. There's many more responsibilities that we have as a believer. We only sourced five. But we did so because the believers at Sardis, we don't want to become like the believers at Sardis, as individually or at church, because they have recognized as once being alive. But now they become callous and cold and complacent. They were pronounced as dead. I mean, like the Pharisees, their outer appearance was just a facade, hiding their lack of truly surrendering and committing their lives to Christ. As we mentioned and now stated again, they were falling far short of fulfilling their obligations of believers. And because of that, they began to have a slow death. Here at Crossroads, we are serving our community and we're loving Jesus. We're loving Jesus and loving people. And we need to make sure we keep fulfilling that responsibility and obligation. Because the last thing we ever want to hear, none of us ever want to hear the Lord pronounce Crossroads Baptist Church as dead. We never want to hear that. So I pray we never will. We'll keep alive in Christ. As a summary, I give you a commentary which words it all this way. He says, simply put, our responsibility lies in working for the Lord whether it is in looking after orphans or widows in distress, giving to the hungry, the naked, visiting those in prison, serving in our workplace, or doing whatever we do. And the motivation is that we have God's own promise that our work is not in vain in the Lord, since you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. That's what we do to stay alive. The believers of Sardis, but once alive, but are now dead. So we do it for him to receive the glory, and we do it for us to stay spiritually alive. Let us never have a spiritual death as individuals are the church body together. Let us stay alive. Father, Lord, thank you. This message today helps us in understanding perhaps why we do the things we do. We understand, Lord, now that there are responsibilities we have as believers. Only a few have we outlined. But Lord, we recognize there are more, but yet we do these things. We have responsibilities and we fulfill them in the best that we can. We're not perfect. But we fulfill our responsibilities the best that we can to make sure we are never pronounced as dead. Lord, I'm thankful for everybody's hard work and commitment and love they have here at Crossroads. It's easy to see, Lord, as we come into the church, the love that people have here for you. So I pray, Lord, for all of us as individuals and a church body together. We would always stay alive, and that we would always do things for your glory. And we would never die, never become complacent. Help us today, Lord. Heed the message here. Keep us spiritually alive, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.